scripture reading for today is taken from Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 9 and 15 to 24. I read from the ESV translation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plants of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he, could, he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this morning we have the good gift of receiving um, Leah as our guest preacher. If you recall, I think it was November 2018 that we had Leah speak and I, I, it brought back memories of having to work with uh, Jason Biasi and Andrea Tischer. And we're just sitting down and praying and thinking about what sermon series we would want uh, in that particular season. Because we were, it was right prior to us being displaced. And so the title of the series was Displacement Series. And um, yeah, Leah was one individual that um, Jason thought of and we thought. We should do that. And now, four years after, November 2022, uh, you're here with us. So thank you for making time to be with us. (laughs) 
So um, just wanted to say a little bit about uh, who Leah is, for those of you who are not uh, familiar with her. She is the co-founder of Arasha. Arasha is a Christian conservation organization that works for the uh, works uh, in ways to show uh, love, God's love, for all of creation. Uh, Leah is also currently working as the spiritual director at Arasha. Um, she's a author, a speaker. I mean, you do whole, a mom. A mom <laughs> as well. Um, and I, I, I do remember, I, I, I did read um, one of uh, Leah's book, Planted, uh, and there's a section I think that I, I don't forget, and she wrote something like, uh, the notion of us, the notion that we are image bearers, coupled with the idea that, that this earth, it's the Lord's, has major implications in how we live. That's, I don't know if I butchered it. That but was okay. <laughs> Just, I, but, you know, it has impacted my life, and I do hope that as you listen to her, uh, that your life will be impacted as well. So thank you for coming. And Thanks. can I pray for you? Yeah. Okay. Living God, we thank you for the gift of who Leah is. Her humility, her lived experience of walking with Jesus, her convictions around uh, the fact that the gospel has major implication, not just for our own soul, but the entire cosmos, the entire creation. The journey that she's had uh, with all those who are involved in Russia, we thank you. We thank you for her story. We thank you for who she is. We thank you for the ways that you have been at work. And as she speaks, will you fill her with your joy? And as she speaks, will your Holy Spirit speak to us this morning? Thank you for her. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, it's lovely to be amongst you uh, in a very different space than I was in with you four years ago. Um, I've brought my twin sister, so after the service, if you get confused that there's two of me, there's one American here. <laughs> and I'm Canadian. Um, I feel a bit, I go to a little CBWC church down in Surrey, so I feel a bit like the country mouse visiting the big city, um, the mothership, as it were. So it's so good to be among you. Martin Luther, the great German reformer, said that there are two books of God. There's the book of creation and the book of scripture. And they both point us to God, to truth, and to our place in the world. And today, I'd like to read from both those books. And I'm giving you the heads up right here at the beginning because I'm going to start with the book of creation, and I'm going to read, quote unquote, from it for about five to seven minutes. And some of you might get nervous and feel like you've landed in a nature documentary and not in church. And some of you might note the lack of Bible verses in the first five to seven minutes, and this might make you nervous or happy, I don't know. <laughs> but never fear, this sermon is about the gift of creation and about Jesus. So we will read from the book of scripture as well, so hang with me. So opening the book of creation to my particular bit of creation down in South Surrey on the unceded territory of the Semiyamu people to a place called Kingfisher Farm, 
which is a little 10-acre farm. It used to be the first Arasha Center, environmental center, and then when we were donated this new amazing upgrade of a center, um, five families and our family purchased it from Arasha and lived there together in intentional community. And so on the northeast corner of this little farm, there's a forest. And it's really just a small patch of trees. Semi-trucks can be heard barreling down the road on both sides of our property. It's situated right between the two border crossings, if you know where that is. But despite its diminutive size, this woodland packs a biodiverse punch. On my woodland path, walking through these woods, I've encountered white-tailed deer, an American beaver, red-legged frogs, river otters, rough-skinned newts, and birds of copious varieties, from warblers to heron to owls. And then there are the, the trees, towering western red cedars, magnificent Douglas firs, the oldest of which dates back to the 1700s. My husband's a forester, so he cored it. So we know it was from 1730-something. And as I walk amongst these trees, I break spider webs with my face. In the fall, when the spiders have grown to the size of coins, I walk with a stick held out like a machete, allowing me to hack my way through the gossamer threads, um, sending the spiders, spiders sailing like trapeze artists to safer shores under twigs and leaves. But in the spring and early summer, I let my face lead the way. The light is usually so dim that I don't see the spider webs coming. I'm sure you have this experience. And suddenly, you have webs across your face and little pencil point-sized spiders dangling from your head like Hasidic curls, implying a vow. And this is my vow, to map my place by my walking, to every day wake up to the gratuitous wonders served up by the hand of a generous creator. To breathe in creation and in that breathing, find myself restored, recalibrated, more like the Christian I want to be, calm, centered, kind. It sounds very Walden Pond wonderful, doesn't it? Walk in the woods and voila, a new, saner, spiritual self. It sounds so Walden Pond pond wonderful that even I, an everyday forest walker, am tempted to roll my eyes and get on with the work of the day, making the world a better place and trying to be more like Jesus. But what if I told you that both science and Jesus back me up on this one? What if I told you that walking in the woods lowers the stress hormone cortisol in the brain, while at the same time increasing cerebral blood flow, immune defense, and overall mental health. All health benefits that the same amount of walking in the city or on a treadmill does not confer. This is true. Studies have shown it. This is why in the mid to late 1800s, doctors and hospital administrators built tuberculosis sanatoriums near woodlands. Patients who spent time under trees got well faster and in greater percentages than patients in city sanatoriums. Recent studies have shown that even if people can't walk or sit under trees, just being near or seeing a plant is good for their health. In a fascinating 10-year study at a Pennsylvania 
Pennsylvania Hospital, it was shown that patients recovering from gallbladder surgery who had a view of a forest got better faster and used fewer pain meds than patients who had the same surgery but were re recovering on the other side of the hospital with a view of a brick wall. A Norwegian study showed that office workers with a view of a plant, a house plant, not even a whole forest, recorded fewer sick days than office mates with no view of a plant. These studies and pro-plant findings go on and on and have been applied to everything from ADHD, yes, forest walking reduces symptoms in children, to depression and high blood pressure and road rage. So why do plants make us healthier and happier? And don't worry, we are going to get to Jesus. I know some of you at this moment are like, where am I? <laughs> but hang with me. Why do plants make us healthier and happier? The answer is long, but it has to do with things like aromatic chemicals that evergreen trees emit, as well as those negative ions, that um, they're charged mo molecules that are in abundance in forests and near moving water. And both of these promote the release of happy hormones and antioxidants in people. And besides the physiological ben benefits, a recent theory on the plant-brain relationship centers around a psychological benefit dubbed the provocation of fascination effect. In other words, forests incite fascination or wonder. And wonder is psychologically good for us. It's also good for those around us. A study in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology showed empirically that people who participated in wonder-inducing activities were more immediately altruistic. In other words, people who regularly look at trees or the night sky are more, are more likely to make their world a better place. And none of this should come as a surprise. 2,000 years ago, Jesus called his followers to become as little children. Have you watched a little child in nature lately? It's a wonder fest. It's an emotionally recalibrating, kindness-inducing wonder fest. And not only did Jesus call his followers to become like little children, he encouraged them to become bird watchers and botanists also. Remember? Consider the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. And we'll get to this passage a little bit later on. But for now, I'd like to suggest that Jesus' own life modeled the goodness of a daily encounter with creation. And so we come to the book of Scripture, which, as it happens, has over 1,000 verses that mention creation. And we won't get into all of those. <laughs> But as you know, and as we read, um, this book starts with the Hebrew creation story. And in this story, we didn't read this bit, but there's a refrain that appears after the end of each day of creation. And it was good. Tov. Days one to five, it was good. It was good. But then on day six, when you have the creation of cows and whales and nematodes, and as it happens, humans, everything mammalian, reptilian, amphibian, and everything else, when you have it all together, including the light and the darkness, the water, the flora, everything from the previous five days, plus this day, 
When you have the whole web of creation interconnected and in balance, we find God saying not just that it's good, but that it's tov, tov, tov. Three goods, very good. And of course it is very good. It's so good that the oxygen we are breathing in this room right now was emitted by the Douglas firs and the Western Red Cedars in Stanley Park a day or two ago. And the CO2 we are breathing out right now is gonna be metabolized by the boxwoods and the heathers and the ornamental planters in Robson Square a few hours from now. And this is good. This is very good. But let's get back to Jesus. In the scholarly and popular literature on the, on the Christian consideration of, Christ, of um, creation, there's a bit of a gap that comes to Jesus. And for those of us with a bias towards a creation ethic, it would have been really handy if Jesus had extended the Sermon on the Mount to include prohibit, prohibit I can't say that word, against <laughs> pollution or overconsumption. You know, right after he said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, but I say to you, take care of the flowers and the little animals. It would be so lovely if he had said that, but he didn't. Or it would be handy if we could draw upon the apocryphal infancy gospel of Thomas, in which a five-year-old Jesus makes clay pigeons at the riverside, breathes on them, brings them to life and they fly away. But unfortunately, that book is not within our canon of scripture. So Jesus didn't say these words, and as far as we know, he didn't bring clay pigeons to life. But nevertheless, if we pay attention to Jesus's life as recorded in the gospels, we can learn a lot. First of all, we can learn from the significance of his preferred title, the Son of Man which is recorded as being used by him more than 80 times in the gospel. It's the name he preferred above all other names for himself. And we know it's both a play on Daniel 7 and his role as Messiah, but it's also a play on son of Adam from the Hebrew Adamah, meaning dirt or red clay. Adam from Adamah, human from humus, signifying his identification with creation as a human creature. Second, and where we're gonna spend a little bit more time, is Jesus's own interaction with creation, which was such that I would like us for a few minutes to consider Jesus an outdoorsman. And I've worn my outdoorsman shirt in his honor. <laughs> and of course, I don't mean Jesus in camouflage with a bird call and a rifle. I mean Jesus, a man whose stories and own life was primarily set outdoors. Consider, if you will, Jesus was born outside in a cave surrounded by animals, and he died outside. He begins his ministry outside first at a river, at his baptism where an animal, a dove, marks the anointing of his ministry. And then in the wilderness, where Mark's gospel says, wild animals were his companions and angels attended to him. And those wild animals were not sweet woodland creatures, probably, but scary wild animals. His work and teaching are physical and earthy. Besides being inside for meals and a few gatherings, the gospel narratives almost exclusively place Jesus outside 
where he does all sorts of earthy things, from touching bodies to walking on water to multiplying fish and loaves to using spit and dirt to heal a blind man. He preaches on mountainsides. He preaches on the water from a boat. And when he needs the peace and the companionship of God, he slips away to the shores of a lake or to a hillside. You never find a passage in all the Gospels where it says, Jesus got up early in the morning, hunkered down in the corner of the room, threw his prayer shawl over his head, and prayed. No, instead you have passages like Mark 1.35, when it was still dark, Jesus got up early and went outside to pray. It seems like half the time the disciples don't even know where he is because he's wandering around outside. So if Jesus lived his ministry life mostly outside, it's no wonder that most of his stories are set outside. His parables and teaching are filled with sheep, goats, fish, fields, flowers, birds, bread, yeast, pearls, seeds, rocks, floods, vines, vineyards, thorn bushes, thistles, wine, water, wheat, wolves, and foxes. I know because I took an inventory. Almost all of Jesus' stories have a common setting, the Galilean countryside, the Galilean ecosystem, if you were. And most of them have this theme of the good news of the kingdom's coming, which is often about bounty and a reversal of fortunes. And this theme of bounty and unexpected grace is played out again and again in Jesus' agrarian stories, where nature is not just a backdrop, but a metaphor for how God's kingdom comes. It's like a tiny seed that turns into the largest trees. It's also a picture of how nature works. Jesus saw creation as a place charged with the grandeur of God, to borrow a phrase from Gerard Manley Hopkins. So what does all this tell us about Jesus? How can seeing this obvious thing about him that his preferred places of prayer and teaching, as well as his preferred choice of setting and metaphor was the stuff of the outdoors. How can recognizing this help us see Jesus and creation afresh? To answer this, we must, um, sorry, that was a bit I cut out. I'm not gonna answer that. Um, (laughs) And to answer this, the question is quite obvious. You know, besides the fact that there was no football stadiums to gather everybody in during that time, I believe that Jesus discovered wisdom and the presence of God in creation. Perhaps the reason he was able to produce all those parables seemingly on the spot was because he had already wandered the hillsides and the lakesides as an invisible, unknown young man. He had already looked around at the birds of the of the air and the flowers of the field, and seen and heard both the oppression of his people but also the voice of his father. So way before Jesus ever said, consider the lilies of the field, I think he himself considered the lilies of the field. I don't think he would ask his followers to do what he was not already doing. I think he looked at particular real lilies in particular real fields. Jesus found refreshment and reorientation in creation. 
It seems obvious from his Consider the Lilies of the Field and the Birds of the Air passage that he found not just emotional refreshment, but spiritual refreshment. Creation itself was the arena of God's action and care. In his considering, he saw that God cared for these seemingly insignificant things, wildflowers that were a dime a dozen, bits of vegetation that could be trampled on without a thought. God cared for these vulnerable little things and clothed them in beauty beyond what a king could afford. And if God could care for something as fleeting as a flower, how much more would he care for him? And that word, it's interesting, that word consider in Greek, it also can be translated apprentice yourself unto. Live like the flowers. Let them be your mentors and teachers. Let them be a model and influence in your life for the sake of a more peaceful way of living. A modern rendition of this passage um, was written by Wendell Berry, the poet. So see if you can pick up in his poem this same message of Jesus about the birds and the flowers. This is what Barry wrote. It's called The Peace of Wild Things. When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound for fear of what my life and my children's lives might be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the blue heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still waters and I feel above me the day blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. I think Jesus could have written that. <laughs> and with regard to God's interaction with nature, as an observant Jew, Jesus was following a, tradi a tradition that saw God in creation. Jesus' biblical ancestors encountered God in an oak tree, a burning bush, a cloud, a mountain, a stone pillow, a raven, and a gentle wind, just to name a few. They didn't confuse these things with being God, but they saw them as places where God could show up. And is it any wonder, given Jesus' affinity for an observation of creation then, that when Mary found Jesus in the garden after the resurrection, that she mistook him for the gardener? There's only one occurrence of this episode and no, and in the Gospels, and there's no explanation from Paul or another New Testament writer. So we're left to surmise for ourselves what the heck Jesus was doing and why she thought he was the gardener. Who knows? Perhaps he was gardening. It's certainly the most logical and straightforward explanation, and it jives with Paul's passages later in the New Testament, especially in Colossians 1, which talks about the reconciliation of all things in Christ. But whether Jesus was pulling weeds or not is really beside the point. His whole life points to his right relationship with all of creation, both as a place for his own spiritual nurture and a place for his ministry. Jesus, son of God, son of man, who when he was a little boy surely played in the dirt, 
and perhaps made clay pigeons on a riverbank. Jesus, who grew up under the tutelage of Joseph, working with wood and perhaps building furniture or even houses. Jesus, who ate olives and bread and honey and drank wine and water and sometimes water that he turned into wine. Jesus, who when the time came to enter into the calling of his ministry, announcing the, king, the coming of the kingdom, where all people are invited to the banquet table of God. When it came time for all this, he chose a title that pointed to his solidarity with humanity. Son of man, second Adam, second dirt person. Creation was not a backdrop to his work. It was a part of it, just as he was a part of creation. The creator became the creation in the ultimate act of solidarity. And I believe he found solace and encouraged his followers to find solace in watching the birds and considering the flowers because they spoke to the interconnectedness of all things. They pointed to day six of creation. Tov, tov, tov. All things held in the love of God. All things on heaven and on earth, as Colossians 1 states, reconciled to Christ. So, I walk in the woods because life is hard. It is beautiful and it is fascinating, but it is hard and the news is scary. And left to my own devices, I can easily descend into egocentric narratives and despair. Frankly, I need all the serotonin and negative ions I can get. I also need the profound spiritual benefit that comes from finding my place as a creature in creation. I need the recalibration that comes from considering the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, knowing that God's face is shining on me just as God's face is shining on all that God created. Like Jesus, I need to experience the nearness of God in creation. Therefore, on this first Sunday of Advent, as we, ate, as we wait for the Son of Man to be born amongst us again, may I offer this bit of spiritual health and wellness advice. Find some trees. Walk under them. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.